1: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexuality that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On the morning of Monday, February 1st, 1982... Twelve residents of Newport, Rhode Island, reported at the courthouse for jury duty. But instead of spending their day listening to testimony, they were bused to one of the ritziest neighborhoods in town and escorted inside a mansion called Clarendon Court. As unlikely as it seemed, the prosecution claimed this 10-bedroom oceanfront paradise was a crime scene. It was here that 56-year-old Klaus von Bülow allegedly attempted to kill his wife, Sunny, by injecting her with insulin. Twice. Now, 50-year-old Sunny lay in a hospital bed in a persistent vegetative state. The prosecution walked the jurors through the critical rooms of the house, the pink and white marble bedroom where Sonny was found unconscious and barely breathing, Klaus's study where Klaus's stepson Alex found the alleged murder weapon, a black pouch containing a vial of insulin and a used hypodermic needle. The library where Sonny last spoke to Alex before lapsing into her coma. Every room had sweeping views of the ocean, and every room was tainted by what happened to Sonny. The immense wealth on display at Clarendon Court told the jurors one thing. Klaus von Bulow had a lot to lose if his wife divorced him, and even more to gain if she died. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police, or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast Original. Each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we examined the relationship between Sonny and Klaus von Bülow. When she suddenly fell into a coma without explanation in 1980, her children urged the police to investigate. Eventually, Sonny's husband, Klaus, was charged with her attempted murder. This week, we'll follow his high-profile trial, the shocking verdict, and the subsequent aftermath. And ultimately, we'll see for ourselves how the evidence matches up with the verdict. The Klaus von Bulow case was gearing up to be the trial of the century. Prosecutor Stephen Famiglietti's witness list included a prince, a princess, and a soap opera star. Yet women showed up outside the courthouse wearing Free Klaus t-shirts and were dubbed Klausettes by the media. Famiglietti was determined to cut through the BS and focus on the facts of the case. For him, the bombshell witnesses weren't the celebrities, but the medical doctors Who all agreed that Sonny's two comas were intentionally caused by an overdose of insulin. The first, in 1979, lasted only a few days. The second, in 1980, caused a permanent loss of higher brain function. This was where Famiglietti started his case. In his opening statement on February 2, 1982, He told the jury that these two comas were not accidents, nor were they suicide attempts. Famiglietti insisted that Sonny, who had everything to live for, was the victim of two attempts on her life. And the only person who would benefit from Sonny's death was her husband, Klaus von Bülow. Famiglietti promised the jury they would hear the motive, means, and opportunity. The first, motive, was simple. Klaus wanted to marry his mistress, 35-year-old actress Alexandra Isles, without losing his access to Sonny's fortune. Sonny was about to divorce Klaus, taking her money with her. The prosecutor's animated speech was contrasted by Klaus's austere demeanor at the defense table. His face was a stern mask when Famiglietti finished and his own attorney, Harold Price Farringer, stood to address the jury. Farringer painted Sunny Von Bulow as a woman with self-destructive behaviors. She drank too much and took risks with her health. After she was diagnosed with hypoglycemia, a condition where the body produces too much insulin, she continued to eat sugary foods, inflaming her condition. She also abused tranquilizers and barbiturates. He explained to the court the sad truth. Sonny caused her own coma. Faringer admitted Klaus had a relationship with Alexandra Isles, but he insisted Sonny was fully aware of their courtship. It wasn't an affair. Sonny gave Klaus permission to see other people after she lost interest in sex years before. All she asked was he be discreet. Ferringer conceded the couple had discussed divorce, but alleged that it was Klaus who wanted to end the marriage, not Sonny. Klaus had enough wealth to be comfortable on his own. He didn't need or want to kill his wife. Klaus von Bülow was innocent. The prosecution's first witness, Sonny's 22-year-old son, Prince Alexander von Auersberg, a.k.a. Alex, eagerly took the stand after opening statements concluded. He couldn't believe the audacity of the defense to portray his loving, generous mother as a self-destructive drug addict. He blamed his stepfather entirely for Sonny's current state, and he planned to testify as such. To Alex, the most damning piece of evidence against Klaus was the black medicine pouch he'd found in the study closet. He told the court that he saw the pouch a couple of times between the first and second comas. Both times, his mother's maid, Maria Schralhammer, had shown it to him. Prosecutor Famiglietti asked him to clarify what was inside the pouch. Alex replied that Maria pulled out a small bottle and asked, what is insulin for? Alex admitted that he didn't actually see the label himself. Only Maria looked at the vial. But because of her hypoglycemia, insulin was basically poisonous to Sonny. Alex could think of no good reason for Klaus to keep it in the house unless he meant his mother harm. Establishing the insulin was only step one. Famiglietti also needed to place it in Klaus's hands. He asked Alex, was there anything else inside the pouch? There was, other pill bottles, all with Klaus's name on them, and a used hypodermic needle. It had dried insulin residue still on the tip. To build on this, Famiglietti called the person who first discovered the insulin bottle, Maria Schralhammer. She was Sonny's personal maid for 23 years. The last time, it was among Klaus's things as he packed for Christmas in Clarendon Court. Curious, she checked inside. The vial of insulin was still there. After confirming the details of Alex's testimony, Maria told the court about Sonny's first coma on December 27, 1970. Maria heard muffled groaning coming from Sonny's bedroom. When she knocked on the door, Klaus told her everything was fine and sent her away. But Sonny's condition worsened throughout the day. Maria insisted that Klaus never would have called the doctor unless she'd been there. She had to beg and badger him. The doctor arrived just moments before Sonny stopped breathing. If it weren't for Maria's insistence that Klaus call for help, Sonny would have died. Through Alex and Maria's testimony, Prosecutor Famiglietti had provided reasonable evidence to place the insulin in Klaus's hands. But to drive his point home to the jury, he needed to prove that Sonny's comas in 1979 and 1980 were actually caused by an insulin overdose. He called Sonny's personal physician, Dr. Richard Stock, to the stand. Stock testified that Sonny had been in excellent health and she showed no signs of the kind of substance abuse the defense presented in their opening. In addition to his general practice, Dr. Stock had specialized training in alcoholism and substance abuse. He would have recognized the issue in one of his long-term patients. Famiglietti asked Dr. Stock, in his professional opinion, if he thought Sonny's comas were caused by an insulin injection. Dr. Stock admitted that he'd had that suspicion after the first coma in 1979. But sadly, he'd kept it to himself. Defense attorney Faringer tried to capitalize on this comment in his cross-examination. If Dr. Stock really thought someone had intentionally injected his patient with insulin, why hadn't he said anything about it? Was it not his ethical duty to convey his suspicions? Dr. Stock snapped back. Don't you think I wish like heck I'd mention this to her? I failed her. To strengthen his medical claims, Prosecutor Famiglietti called another independent doctor to the stand. Dr. George Cahill was a leading expert in diabetes, the pancreas, and insulin production. After reviewing Sunny's lab records, Dr. Cahill concluded that her comas must have been caused by external doses of insulin. Sonny's reported levels were so high, there was no way they could have been produced by her own body, hypoglycemia or not. Satisfied, Famiglietti quickly concluded his questioning. Seeing how much damage Dr. Cahill's testimony could cause, defense attorney Faringer spent 20 minutes debating every fact and finding, but Dr. Cahill stood firm in his diagnosis— Sonny von Bulow was poisoned with insulin. Then Farringer had a flash of inspiration. Okay, Dr. Cahill, let's say I agree with you and Sonny's coma was caused by an insulin overdose. How do you know it was my client who injected her? Dr. Cahill was struck silent. There was no way to know. Farringer clarified for the jury no test or medical record could prove who tried to murder Sonny, only that they did. Dr. Cahill conceded that was correct. Prosecutor Famiglietti wasn't rattled by Farringer's maneuver. He already knew there was no way to definitively put the syringe in Klaus's hand, but with his next witness, he would show the jury that Klaus was the only one motivated to inject Sonny, by two sins, greed and lust. He let Sonny's financial advisor, Morris Gurley, explain just how much Klaus would lose in a divorce by the numbers. In the 14 years they'd been married, Klaus had barely worked and contributed very little to the von Bülow's finances. Why should he, when he'd married an heiress? But this also meant that in the event of a divorce, Klaus only received a stipend from an irrevocable trust about $120,000 a year, which is around $370,000 today. This was a significant income for most, but it was peanuts compared to the $14 million Klaus would inherit if Sonny died. It was the equivalent of $43 million today. To round out the motive, the state called to the stand the woman Klaus was allegedly doing this all for, 36-year-old Alexandra Isles. Alexandra played Victoria Winters in the 1960s fantasy soap opera Dark Shadows, It had been around 14 years since she was last seen on daytime TV, but now she was in the middle of a real-life soap opera. Alexandra testified that she first met Klaus in April of 1978. Less than a year later, they were talking about marriage. But Klaus dragged his feet on divorcing his wife. So Alexandra gave him an ultimatum of six months. By Thanksgiving of 1979, they would be together as man and wife or she would walk. But the six months came and went, and Klaus still didn't file for divorce. Alexandra realized she was wasting her time. Klaus would never leave Sonny, so she broke it off. That Christmas, a month after the ultimatum, Alexandra was visiting family in Ireland when Klaus called her. It was December 27, 1979, the day of the first coma. When Klaus told her Sonny was in the hospital, Alexandra initially thought it was due to a suicide attempt. Klaus must have made good on his promise to divorce Sonny, and Sonny simply couldn't cope. She did something drastic. Wracked with guilt, Alexandra distanced herself from Klaus. But by the summer of 1980, Alexandra and Klaus had rekindled their affair. She found out that Sonny's coma was caused by hypoglycemia, not depression. However, Klaus still refused to divorce her. So eventually, Alexandra broke things off for good. Prosecutor Famiglietti asked Alexandra, if she'd heard from Klaus after their second breakup. She had. He called in late December of 1980. Once again, Sunny was in a coma. And this time, the doctors said she would never recover. Alex and Klaus started seeing each other. Again, they spoke of marriage. Famiglietti pressed her on this. Were they engaged now? No. Once Klaus fell under suspicion of trying to murder Sonny, their relationship soured. At first, Alexandra thought the allegations were a pack of nonsense. But when her attorney advised her to distance herself from Klaus, she listened. Prosecutor Famiglietti asked Alexandra if she still loved Klaus. She paused before replying, I don't know. He then asked if she still believed the allegations against Klaus were a pack of nonsense. There was a pause in the courtroom. Famiglietti expected Klaus's attorney to object, but Faringer sat still. Alexandra answered quietly, I don't know. Next, the defense has their chance to question Klaus's mistress.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
1: Thirty-six-year-old Alexandra Isles shifted nervously on the witness stand as prosecutor Stephen Famiglietti finished questioning her. She was clearly uncomfortable. When he pressed, she was forced to admit that she didn't know whether or not her former lover, 56-year-old Klaus von Bulow, had tried to kill his wife to be with her. It was embarrassing enough to stand in front of the television cameras and describe how she'd allowed Klaus to string her along for two years. She could only imagine what other secrets Klaus told his attorney to discredit her as a witness. She steeled herself to answer whatever accusations the lawyers threw at her. But when defense attorney Harold price Faringer rose to cross-examine Alexandra, he stunned the court. He had no questions for Miss Isles. Alexandra, relieved, was dismissed from the stand amid whispers in the courtroom, and with no further questions, the prosecution rested. It was not without chagrin that Faringer allowed Alexandra Isles to step down unquestioned, but he had to follow his client's wishes. Klaus had directed him to spare his ex girlfriend further public scrutiny. Instead, Faringer would try other tactics. First, he called a woman named Joy O'Neill to the stand. Joy was a fitness instructor at Sunny's health club. She'd been added to the witness list late in the proceedings, halfway through the state's case. But Joy assured the court that she was a big part of Sunny's life. For four years, she gave Sunny an average of seven classes a month. Joy characterized her relationship with Sunny as very close, almost like sisters. Joy claimed that in late 1978, a full year before the first coma, she had a conversation with Sunny about insulin. When Joy complained about her recent weight gain, Sunny told her that injecting insulin was the answer to her problems. She assured Joy that she could eat and drink whatever she wanted, and the insulin would eat up the sugar for her. It was a genius move on Faringer's part. The state's own witness admitted that there was no way to know who had injected Sonny with the insulin overdose, no way to put the syringe in Klaus's hand. Now here was Joy putting it in Sonny's hand. Famiglietti was outraged and came after Joy hard in his cross-examination. On a few details, she was steadfast. Sunny definitely talked about injecting insulin, but on other specifics, she didn't have any answers, admitting that some of her memories were foggy. Famiglietti tried to use this selective memory to discredit her as a witness, but it was only so effective. She was so certain about the things she did remember, Joy came across as someone to be believed. But Famiglietti was determined to parse out fact from fiction. No one else in Sonny's life testified about insulin use for weight control. There had to be more to Joy's story. As the defense continued their case, Famiglietti sent an investigator to New York City to take a closer look at Joy O'Neill. In the meantime, the defense called Robert Huggins, a medical technician at Newport Hospital who treated Sonny after her first coma. Huggins was a reluctant witness, not wanting to get involved in the case, but his family contacted attorney Harold Farringer on his behalf because they were so disturbed by what Huggins told them. Huggins met Sonny on December 30th, 1979, a few days after her first coma. He testified that he entered her hospital room to draw some blood. She looked like she wanted to talk, so Huggins engaged her. When he asked her what happened, Sonny replied, I tried to kill myself. Huggins immediately regretted opening his mouth feeling like all he'd done was put his foot in it. Trying to fix it, he told Sonny she shouldn't kill herself. People loved her, but she just scoffed, dejected. Yeah, sure. Prosecutor Famiglietti couldn't believe what he was hearing. When it was his turn to cross-examine Huggins, he demanded to know why he hadn't come forward with this information sooner. After all, the police visited the hospital upwards of 30 times during their investigation. And yet Huggins said nothing. Until now? Huggins didn't offer much of an explanation for his reticence, just that he didn't want to get involved. Without any other witnesses to Sonny's suicide confession, he knew the story sounded unbelievable. The Miglietti retorted, You can say that again. To build on Robert Huggins' assertion that Sonny tried to take her own life, Faringer called Dr. John Carr to the stand. Dr. Carr was a psychiatrist who examined Sonny after her first coma. In their meeting, he asked if she had tried to kill herself. She told him no, but added that she often wished she was dead. Dr. Carr explained to the jury that Sonny was deeply depressed and had been for quite some time. But prosecutor Famiglietti struck down Dr. Carr's credibility with one question How long was his conversation with Sonny von Bulow that day? Dr. Carr pursed his lips. Famiglietti pressed him, asking again How long did he examine Sonny before he determined that she was suicidal? 20 minutes. And did he follow up with her after the initial consultation? If she was as deeply depressed as he characterized her to be, did he feel the need to continue her care? He did not. Dr. Carr only met with Sonny one time. Famiglietti clarified for the jury one time for 20 minutes. And yet, he pondered, the doctor could draw such exacting conclusions about her. After Dr. Carr left the stand, the entire courtroom expected that the next witness for the defense would be the defendant himself, Klaus von Bulow. But instead, Faringer addressed the judge, the defense rests. To be sure, Klaus wanted to testify, Throughout the proceedings, he'd sat stoically at the defense table, giving nothing away. Taking the stand would be his only chance to explain things to the jury, but Feringer convinced him not to do it in the end. There was nothing in the state's case for Klaus to explain or answer for. The majority of the case was medical evidence. Leave that to the doctors to refute. Faringer later admitted that Klaus's personality played a role in the decision. Contrary to what Klaus believed, he was not the right person to tell his side of the story. Feringer worried his client would inevitably come across as haughty and condescending to the middle-class jury. So he left well enough alone and rested his case. Prosecutor from Iglietti wasn't done, not by a long shot. He called several rebuttal witnesses to counter the defense's presentation. He even called a fitness instructor of his own, Nancy Rather. She was colleagues with Joy O'Neill. According to class records at Sonny's Health Club, Joy had taught Sonny only five times total, not multiple times a week for years, as she claimed. Even more damningly, the documents showed that all of these lessons took place before 1978, the year Joy claimed their conversation about injecting insulin had taken place. If that wasn't enough to convince the jury, Nancy Rather testified that Joy had a reputation in the studio for being a liar. She'd boasted to others about her relationship with Sonny von Bulow, but everyone knew they weren't that close. Certainly not as close as sisters, like Joy testified. In Rhode Island courts, the state always gets the last word. So when it came time to make closing statements, the defense went first. Harold price Fairinger spoke quietly, pulling back from the drama of the trial. He reminded the jury that they had promised they wouldn't judge Klaus based on his affair, but rather the evidence against him. He addressed the first coma. Klaus truly believed his wife was simply hungover from overindulging in the eggnog from the day before. Faringer emphasized that Klaus did eventually call a doctor. He didn't let his wife die. As to the second coma, Sonny had eaten an ice cream sundae that day, against her doctor's express orders. She felt unwell before she was alone with Klaus that night, before he could have possibly had a chance to do anything to her. Faringer summarized, Sonny was a chronically sick woman who didn't follow the doctor's orders. All Klaus could do was stand by and watch. His wife was an adult and Klaus von Bulow, was an innocent man. When prosecutor Stephen Famiglietti stood before the jury for the final time, he characterized Feringer’s case as a multiple-choice defense. He wanted the jury to believe hypoglycemia, ice cream, eggnog, barbiturates, and aspirin caused the comas. But that argument didn't fly. Multiple doctors testified Sonny's coma was caused by an insulin overdose. So the defense had to change their story, now claiming that Sonny injected herself with a deadly dose to lose weight. But Joy O'Neill was a liar. So now the defense claimed that this was an attempted suicide, not an accidental overdose. Sonny was unhappy with her husband's affair and tried to end it all. What did the jury want to believe? A, B, C? They could take their pick, according to the defense. Or there was a much simpler answer. Klaus von Bülow wanted to get rid of his wife so he could be with his lover and keep his well-funded life of luxury. Famiglietti pointed to Maria's testimony Klaus ignored his wife's worsening condition for hours and hours as she sunk into her first coma. He only gave in when Maria forced him to call the doctor. Klaus didn't make that mistake the second time. He had Maria stay back in New York when they traveled to Rhode Island the next Christmas. Klaus had the perfect motive. He had the means and the opportunity and now the jury had to hold him accountable. They had to find him guilty. The jury spent the next several days in deliberations, mulling over 72 witnesses and 117 pieces of evidence. On the sixth day, they reached a decision. On March 15, 1982, at 11.15 in the morning, Television channels across the country interrupted their daytime programming with breaking news. As 56-year-old Klaus von Bülow stared straight ahead, the jury person read the verdict. On two counts of attempted murder, they found him guilty. The courtroom erupted. Klaus's supporters struggled to process what they heard. Klaus faced 40 years in prison— Effectively a life sentence for the 56-year-old, Klaus himself didn't react, except for a slight twitch of his left eye. He was allowed to remain free on bail, pending his sentencing. Two weeks after the verdict, Klaus called Harvard professor and respected attorney Alan Dershowitz to help him appeal. Klaus knew Dershowitz by reputation as the lawyer of last resort, and he wasn't the only one. Dershowitz would go on to represent such clients as Leona Helmsley, Mike Tyson, and O.J. Simpson. If anyone could get Klaus a new trial, it was Alan Dershowitz. Next, Klaus's new attorney uncovers shattering evidence. Now back to the story. On May 7, 1982, Judge Thomas Needham sentenced 56-year-old Klaus von Bulow to 30 years in prison. But the judge shocked the courtroom when he allowed Klaus to remain free on bail pending his appeal. Because Klaus was still a Danish citizen, if he fled the United States, he couldn't be extradited. Facing 30 years in prison, if his appeal failed, many thought that's precisely what he would do. But Klaus was determined to clear his name. Instead of leaving the country, he hired a new attorney. In Alan Dershowitz's opinion, most defendants were guilty. He warned all his clients as much, but that didn't deter Klaus. He insisted that he was innocent of attempted murder. Not only that, but his rights had been violated. After a few months of reinvestigating the case, Dershowitz found two major grounds to appeal on. The first was the black medicine pouch. Klaus's 22-year-old stepson Alex found it when he searched Klaus's private closet. Had that same search been conducted by the police without a warrant, the evidence would have been inadmissible, but because a private citizen had done it, Judge Needham allowed it to be presented at trial. But when the police took the bag into evidence, they knew it belonged to Klaus, and they knew it had been confiscated without his permission. They should have gotten a warrant before they tested the items in the bag. But Dershowitz was concerned that an appeal on these grounds would look too much like a loophole. Guilty people looked for loopholes. Innocent ones looked for evidence that proved their righteousness. So he looked through what evidence Judge Needham had excluded from the trial. Eventually, Dershowitz zeroed in on attorney Richard Koo's notes from his initial investigation into Sonny's coma, conducted at the urging of Sonny's children from her first marriage, Alex and Allah. At trial, Koo insisted the notes were protected by attorney-client privilege because they were from meetings between Koo and his clients. Judge Needham had agreed, so he barred them from evidence and the defense never saw them. But in reading over the trial testimony, Dershowitz realized that Ku had referred to his notes when testifying for the prosecution. And attorneys cannot invoke selective privilege, saying some parts of their communications are protected while others are not. By using his notes in the trial, even just as a reference, Ku had broken any privilege he claimed. Therefore, the defense should have been able to see the notes and use them as they saw fit. With this violation, Dershowitz would mount Klaus's appeal. And even though the lawyer worried that arguing to exclude the black pouch would make Klaus look guilty, in the end, he also included this argument in the filing. In the spring of 1984, two years after his conviction, The appellate court agreed with both arguments, and Klaus was granted a new trial. But this time, the defense would have access to Richard Koo's notes, and the state would not be able to present the tests they ran on the contents of the black pouch. Koo's notes were handwritten and messy, nearly unreadable by many, but Dershowitz, a longtime college professor, was experienced in reading students' handwritten essays. He had no issue decoding the chicken scratch. The first mention of insulin in the notes didn't occur until January 20, 1981, weeks after the children initially met with Ku and after they learned of Sonny's high insulin level from her blood work. Koo later claimed that they had discussed insulin in earlier meetings. He simply hadn't written it down. But there were other inconsistencies. The early interview notes didn't mention syringes in the black pouch. In fact, according to the notes, Maria originally told Koo that the labels on the medicine bottles had been scraped off. This was a complete contradiction from her trial testimony when she claimed she read the label to the insulin bottle. Finally, Ku made a note that the family discussed Sunny's life support fairly early on, just two weeks after she fell into a coma. Her daughter, Alla, knew that Sunny wouldn't have wanted to live in a persistent vegetative state, but she still couldn't bring herself to turn off the life support. Alla specifically told Koo that Klaus was leaving the decision up to the children. He had the chance to end Sonny's life and claim his inheritance, the thing the state argued he was trying to do all along, but he wouldn't do it. This directly contradicted statements Alla and Alex made to the press that Klaus tried to turn off life support and they stopped him. But Dershowitz needed something more definitive. He turned his attention to the insulin-crusted needle found in the black pouch. After speaking with several experts, he learned that there was no way the needle could have been used to inject Sunny and still have a residue on the outside. The needle would have been wiped clean as it was removed from the skin. Instead, this needle could only have insulin on the outside if it was dipped in insulin but not injected. Dershowitz was satisfied that he'd found a smoking gun. When Klaus's retrial began on April 25, 1985, Alan Dershowitz wasn't available to represent him. Instead, he recommended Thomas Puccio to see him through the proceedings. Puccio was an experienced attorney And, armed with the findings of Dershowitz's investigation, he was prepared to challenge the state on every front. Having had so much success the first time around, the state presented a nearly identical case. When they called Sonny's maid, Maria Schralhammer, her testimony was the same as the first trial. She saw a bottle with an insulin label and a hypodermic needle in the black pouch. But armed with Ku's notes, Puccio was able to challenge Maria on her inconsistent statements. When he asked if she told Ku about the insulin the first time she met with him, Maria admitted it was possible she didn't mention it, but only because she wasn't aware of the significance. When he asked if she said the labels were scratched off, Maria's previously clear English failed her. Her answer was vague and unintelligible. Prince Alex von Auersberg followed Maria to the stand, and like her, he repeated the same testimony he'd given previously. Again, Puccio challenged him. According to Ku's notes, Four days after Alex discovered the black pouch in Klaus's closet, the family discussed offering Klaus a financial settlement to renounce his interest in Sonny's money. When they found the pouch, it made the family suspicious that Klaus had tried to kill Sonny, and yet they were willing to pay him off to make him go away? Alex hesitated, but admitted it was true. Puccio clarified, so was this case ever about finding justice for his mother, or about protecting the family's money? When Alex tried to defend his intentions, Puccio once again referred to Ku's notes. He read back to the court Alex's own words from his very first meeting with Ku. He didn't want to lose the family's Newport mansion under any circumstances. This new information twisted the jurors' perception of Sonny's children. Instead of a family who wanted justice for Sonny, they looked like a greedy family trying to get Klaus out of the will, no matter what it took. Even worse for the state, their star witness, the key to establishing Klaus's motive, was MIA. Forty-year-old Alexandra Isles, Klaus's mistress, was completely unreachable. Rumors spread that she fled the country to avoid testifying. Less generous commentators theorized she was staying away to heighten the drama. The judge set a deadline. If she didn't show by then, the state would be forced to rest their case without her. Alexandra Isles showed up in court the day before the deadline expired. And unlike the previous witnesses, Alexandra's testimony changed dramatically from the first trial. This time, she told the jury about a phone call she had with Klaus in December of 1979 after Sonny's first coma. Though she'd never mentioned it before now, Alexandra claimed that she couldn't hide the truth any longer. She claimed that Klaus told her about a fight he'd had with Sunny the night before she got sick. They'd been arguing, talking about divorce. He claimed Sonny had been drinking heavily. Then Klaus saw her take a barbiturate before she went to bed. The next morning, she was struggling to breathe. Klaus admitted to Alexandra on the phone that he knew Sunny was in bad shape, but he just watched her struggle all day. Finally, when she was on the brink of death, he decided he couldn't go through with it. He called the doctor for help. At the first trial, Alexandra could barely admit that she suspected Klaus had tried to kill his wife, but now she not only suspected it, she said he confessed to nearly letting Sonny die. While this story contradicted the state's theory that Klaus injected Sonny before both comas, It gave the jury another option. If they didn't believe the insulin theory for the first coma, this showed that Klaus knew his wife took a potentially lethal combination of alcohol and drugs, and he didn't do anything about it. It proved Klaus wanted her dead. With that damning image, the state rested their case. Defense attorney Puccio focused the rest of his case on the medical evidence. He called several experts who disagreed with the state's doctors that the cause of Sonny's comas was insulin. Instead, they again pointed to Sonny's hypoglycemia and her reckless diet. Once again, Klaus asked his attorney to let him testify and defend himself on the stand. Once again, they advised him against it. Instead, after the experts, Puccio rested his case. In his closing statement, Puccio focused on the distinct lack of evidence. The state had to first prove insulin injections caused Sonny's two comas. Only then could they move on to show that Klaus gave Sonny the injections. But they had failed to do both, and therefore, Klaus von Bülow could not be found guilty. Prosecutor Mark DeSisto used his closing argument to refocus the jury on Sonny. Rather than covering the finer points of his case, he offered an emotional argument. He asked the jurors to put themselves in the room with Sonny and picture Klaus injecting her with insulin. She watched her husband walk away from her, sit on their bed, and read a book as she slowly slipped into darkness. He urged the jury to confirm the first verdict, find Klaus guilty of attempted murder. On Monday, June 10, 1985, the jury returned to court after only two days of deliberation. On the first count of attempted murder, the jury found Klaus not guilty. His steely composure cracked just a bit as he felt the first wave of relief, but it wasn't over. They still had to render a verdict on the 1980 incident, the one with the more persuasive evidence. When the clerk asked for the verdict on count two, the jury foreperson said solemnly, not guilty. Klaus dropped his head to his chest, When he lifted it, he had tears in his eyes. This was the first and only time Klaus showed any emotion during either of his trials. He tried to regain his composure before he turned to face the packed courtroom of his supporters. He was a free man. Sonny von Bulow lived nearly 28 years in her coma, never waking up before dying on December 6, 2008, at the age of 76. In a settlement with his stepchildren, Klaus von Bülow agreed to divorce Sonny and relinquish all claims to her fortune. He also agreed to never discuss the case publicly. He left the United States and resettled in London, where he lived until his death at the age of 92. Though the state argued Klaus wanted to move out of an unhappy marriage into a new relationship with his wealth, at the time of his death, Klaus was living simply in a small apartment alone. He spent his time with his and Sonny's daughter, Cosima, and her children. Alan Dershowitz, who remained in contact with Klaus until his death, said he had a good and happy life after the acquittal. And it was a life that was, finally, lived outside the spotlight. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty, we'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Not Guilty, for free, from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson.